Hello, hello to all of my fellow students of Mesoamerica. Welcome back to Mesoamerican Studies on Air. It's been a little while since our last episode, but I wanted to make sure to bring you some content during the coronavirus period of our lives. Today, I am so excited to be sharing an interview with one of my dear friends, Mary Kate Kelly, who is a Maya epigrapher specializing in late classic Maya period. We're gonna hear from her in just a minute, but first I just wanted to take a moment to thank you again for being here, to thank you for your patience as I put out this next episode during my crazy chaotic life as a PhD student, and as always, to thank you for sharing this with anyone that you think might be interested in hearing with it. I hope you're all safe, healthy, and happy. Let's move on with the interview. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me about the work that you've been doing. Um, Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what you do and what brought you to this field. Yeah, thanks, Katie. This is great. I'm happy to be here. Um, So I do ancient Maya hieroglyphic writing. I specifically look at linguistics and language diversity within the texts. Um, And how I got there is maybe a little less logical than most people who have, you know, they're super passionate about the Maya or they absolutely love puzzles and codes and, um, you know, start studying glyphs when they're like nine years old and then end up doing this. Um, I came to this from kind of writing systems and language and how the two interact and randomly took a class my freshman year while I was doing a um, doing my freshman year at, at University of Colorado at Boulder with Pace and Sheets. And I had studied French and I was just starting to study Chinese. And then I take this class because it randomly fit into my schedule on ancient Maya. And we had a week where we talked about the writing system. And it kind of just all of these pieces of studying French literature and studying a you know totally different writing system like Chinese. And then all of the questions and intrigue and excitement along with, you know, setting a a system that had only recently been decoded, um, ancient Maya, that it just kind of grew from there. And I tried really hard not to do it actually, because it's not (laughs) the easiest field, as you know, (laughs) to be Mm -hmm. in um, career wise, but it just developed into such a passion. I I traveled down to Guatemala and I'm like 19, um, trying to do something more lucrative with my life and then realize that this was just, uh, something that I really fell in love with. So, um, yeah, I guess from kind of a language and writing systems, comparative kind of, kind of a place is where I got into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with what you said about, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's a, it's a hard field to come into and, I, I understand what you're saying, you know, trying to get yourself to do something a bit more lucrative, but being eventually pulled back in, right, by just yeah. the the excitement of the writing system and everything that we know and don't know and can know about it. Right. So what are you working on right now? So I am in my, doing working on my dissertation. Um, my dissertation looks at language diversity in late classic hieroglyphic inscriptions. The late classic is generally termed as about 600 AD to 900. And um, my research is specifically between 650 to 800. 
uh, when we have a lot of texts with a lot of writing from a lot of different places. Uh, and I'm looking at kind of a, a pretty broad region. And the goal originally was to try to figure out if scribes native language was impa impacting the way that they were writing in the hieroglyphs. So hieroglyphs are inherently very bound to language. They record the sounds of language and, and after you know, the last you know, 40 years or so of epigraphic decipherment have really proven that, um, that you can't read the hieroglyphs without understanding the language and languages that they are written in. Um, just like any writing system, any of the world's writing systems, they're inherently bound to how spoken language works. So um, interestingly, the Maya case, similar to, for example, Latin in Europe for mm -hmm. you know two millennia nearly, um, Latin was this lingua franca or kind of prestige language that was used in the writing system, even as Romance languages or other Indo-European languages were developing into separate spoken languages. People were still writing in what became by um, the time the Latin languages are totally diversified, it became kind of a, a an outdated type of speech, but it was used still in the writing system because that's how you learned. That's you learned to write in Latin. The Maya had a very similar kind of structure where there's a prestige language. Um, we can call it classic Cholin here um, for simplicity's mm -hmm. sake that was one relatively unified language that was kind of the target ideal language that scribes were learning to write in. But my hypothesis, and this is based on the work of a lot of people done since the early 2000s, uh, that there were different languages spoken across the Maya lowlands that were influencing the way that people wrote. And this is really clear with um, Yucatecan texts. So from the north, there are a lot of influences from Yucatecan languages, which is a different family related, still a Mayan language family, but different from the um, Cholan languages that were more responsible for the hieroglyphic inscriptions in the south. But a lot of words or phrases or um, ways that verbs are analyzed seems to be coming from Yucatecan languages instead of from Cholan languages. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, work done previously, I looked at Western and Eastern Cholan languages as having different geographic kind of regions that had different linguistic trends and one would influence the other change over time. And so what I'm kind of looking at is what I started off looking at, at least, was trying to figure out how language of the, the native languages of the scribes impacted the way that they were writing and to see if we can define really clearly where those kind of language borders existed. Um, strangely enough, that's not exactly what I'm finding. Um, mm -hmm the research is kind of leading me more toward a very politically charged reason for different language choices, where it's not necessarily a scribe's native language that influences how they're writing, but rather the scribal school in which they learn how to write okay. and what the traditions are according to that scribal school. What do we know so far about, about these scribal workshops in the Maya area? 
Yeah, I mean, um, the, for a long time, there have been hypotheses of scribal schools based on styles or traditions. Um, the the Naranjo vase style, for example, um, is maybe a really prominent one where there's this really beautiful calligraphic style of painting on vases that seems to come from Naranjo and kind of the Eastern Paten region that doesn't have exact copies in other places. And so there's certain styles from the visual representation, both of glyphs and of iconography, that seem to have, uh, that seem to be tied to how a particular area or group of scribes would have been kind of training and working together. But physical representations of schools, like where would these schools have been housed are pretty few and far between. Um, there's one really great example from Shultun. There we go. <laughs> so scribal schools are relatively rare archaeologically speaking, but there's a really great case for one that was found, I believe in 2005, published in 2006, um, by Franco Rossi um, and Bill Saturno out at Shultun. And that is um, a relatively small building that apparently was found because looters had uh, gone into it and then Franco was cleaning it out and discovered an entrance into this beautifully painted room that had actual representations of people given titles uh, that are known to be scribal titles um, that were painted on, on the walls. So that's a really great um, example of an archaeological scribal school. Yeah. Um, but whether those existed everywhere, it's hard to know. It's in kind of a, a small and otherwise not um, like, it's not somewhere that, that, archaeologists would necessarily always look and so there might very well be lots more of these small buildings where scribes would have met but they're hard to identify archaeologically unless you randomly kind of bump into them um, like has happened at Shulton. Mm -hmm. So but the idea of a scribal school and the idea of kind of communities of practice maybe is an easier way to talk about it because school implies a physical location, but like a community of practice doesn't necessarily require a physical location. There certainly were communities of practice in hieroglyphic inscriptions and the related um, kind of iconographic artistic side of things for Maya art. I wanted to ask you, a lot of people have this idea about the Maya that it's like one big empire, right? And it's not mm, yeah. until you really study that you realize that there are different areas, different cities with different languages and different, essentially, kingdoms, right? Um, yeah. And I think your research really hits on how diverse it actually was. Yeah. So that's a great point and something that is really central to what I do. Um, the Maya is a general term that we Westerners use to talk about a group of peoples that don't necessarily identify until very recently as anything coherent or grouped together. Um, their languages are related to one another in that we can say that there is a Mayan family of languages that are affiliated with each other. Um, there, we know about 30 
of them that are spoken today or have recently passed out of out of use um, since the Spanish arrived, there were likely many more while populations were higher in the lowland areas and probably also in the highlands as well before the arrival of the Spanish. So a lot of diversity linguistically and also culturally uh, that we can say across the entire Maya area, which of course spans Yucatan Peninsula, Guatemala into um, Honduras and El Salvador and incorporates Belize as well. So that said, if we know that there's a lot of diversity today and there has been diversity since the colonial era, um, we can look back in time and assume that there must have been a good amount of diversity, especially if you're talking on the range of seven to 11 million people inhabiting the lowlands, which is what um, recent LIDAR estimates are suggesting. We can assume that there was a lot of diversity in the people living there. And we know, you know, they warred with each other and created alliances and, you know, worked together or against one another among different sites based on the historical information that we have from the hieroglyphic texts. Um, but language, since it's such a powerful, um, it's so powerfully kind of correlated to culture that looking at language in the inscriptions might give us a really great view into the kind of cultural diversity that did exist back then. And that's what I was hoping going into this research was to find either distinct dialect areas that would kind of tell us that there are concentration, like patches of different language speakers, and we could maybe extrapolate that to being different groups, you know, separate groups of cultures. Um, but like I mentioned, it's, it's looking like politics actually plays a much bigger role in language choice in the inscriptions than I was necessarily anticipating at the outset. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's funny how research changes like that, right? How the, the more, the more you dive into a subject, the more it kind of takes you to where you need to go. <laughs> Direction. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your research process as an epigrapher. How do you go about doing your research? Um, slowly, tediously, and over the course of many years. <laughs> um, so my work is with primarily illustrations and photographs of the monuments. So the monuments that I've collected to look at just for my dissertation are about 700 in total monuments. And so I can't physically go and look at them in person, every single one in order mm -hmm. to do this research. Um, so what I'm doing is working off of published photos or illustrations, ideally illustrations, good illustrations, new illustrations. Um, but sometimes there are either really poor photographs and no illustration, or they're published really obscurely and, you know, odd places that are hard to find or not published at all. Um, and I have, you know, a scan of a photocopy of a um, <laughs> sketch made by someone, you know, 40 years ago. And so there, it's not, the, the kind of data collection is not consistent in quality, quantity, or um, ease of access. So most of my research to, in order to do this has been in libraries looking through, um, for example, old 
source books for UT Maya meetings. The, the um, Austin, UT Austin campus has done Maya meetings for decades uh, and they often published and still publish source books for the workshops and they've got really great illustrations in there often. Um, sometimes things that don't get end up getting published anywhere else. Um, so those have been really useful. Um, Connecting with other scholars has been really helpful to fill in gaps. Um, Mark Zender, Alex Safranoff in particular have given me a ton of great um, images that they've found throughout the course of their collecting images of these monuments. Um, and then, so that's kind of the, the drier side, staying in the library, looking through archives, going online, looking for scans of things, publications. Um, Corpus of Maya hieroglyphic inscriptions, of course, is a great repository for those kinds of things. Um, but then the fun part is also going to find things actually in the field. So while I don't dig, I do work really closely with the um, El Peru project. So the site of El Peru Waka in the Paten, Guatemala. Um, has brought me on as their epigrapher and I get to work with those texts and so that has been really wonderful. I've also had a great experience working on the La Corona project um, with Marcello Canuto and um, David Stewart getting to work with the text from that site too. Um, so actually going into the field and, and seeing them in their context is a really great opportunity although that's not the majority of the kind of research um, process that I use. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a lot that has to be done in the library. And I think that's, you know, the, it's, the dry part always seems to get left out, right, of these ideas of what, <laughs> what it is that, that you do, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, archaeologists are only in the field a few weeks a year. Um, they, they have to do a lot of their research in the lab and, and outside of the lab as well, crunching data and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, so now I'm at the stage of data crunching, which is putting my data into GIS. And so that's what I'm working on right now is creating maps, giving a, a visual representation of the features that I'm looking at linguistically in the texts. And so that's been a really fun process and I've needed a lot of help. <laughs> um, Francisco Stradabelli, Luke Ald Thomas, Bill Ringel, um, and my husband, Max Lamova Santillar, have all been huge helps uh, to me in, in mapping the data from my dissertation. And that creates really powerful visual of something that maybe wouldn't be really clear just looking at a list of of all of the features at the site. So I'm hoping to get the maps done pretty soon so that I can do some statistical analyses. Um, also maybe not the most exciting you know, piece of this research, but I think there might be some really important things that could come out of a statistical analysis of where these features show up and what kind of the levels of relatedness of different sites in terms of the linguistic features. Um, Mm -hmm. and then plotting that on the landscape, so. Right, so what would you say is new and exciting about the conclusions that you're coming to? Yeah, I mean, um, I think what's new to me and striking to me, um, maybe others have had this realization before, but is just like I've mentioned a couple of times, how politics 
influenced the language choices of these scribes and how entrenched a political affiliation is um, to these to the scribes who are writing these texts. Unfortunately, we don't have names of all of the scribes who are responsible for writing these monuments. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, we might be able to do really in-depth studies on, you know, a, a sociolinguistic level that we're just really not able to at the moment. But, um, for example, a site that is subordinate to Yashchilan is going to write in the same way that a that a Yashchilan scribe will, um, whereas a site that's subordinate to Piedras Negras is going to write in the same way that that a Piedras Negras scribe will. And they're actually, even though these two sites, Piedras Negras and Yashchilan, are geographically very close to each other, you could get for you could walk from one to the other in less than two days. We wouldn't really anticipate that people living at these two centers would speak very differently from one another. They're just so geographically close. You would anticipate that they would have pretty similar spoken language. Um, but scribes are using very slightly different writing styles at each of these places. And then the sites that are allied to them will follow those same trends. And I think that that realization is new. Instead of there just being like Western Cholan trends and Eastern Cholan trends, broadly speaking, um, that there's actually like on the site to site level, we can see differences in how people are writing and you are learning how to write based on, of course, right? The people who are teaching you. I mean, think in English, we write in the US, we write theater with an ER, but in Great Britain, it's written with an RE, right? Um, so that simple, but even though it's pronounced, I mean, a little bit differently, but not in, in a difference that would make sense with ERRE -E difference in spelling. Um, there's similar kinds of spelling differences going on between Yashtila and Piedras Negras that don't necessarily make sense from a purely linguistic, like spoken language influence kind of standpoint and rather make more sense as part of a spelling scribal tradition um, that's politically motivated. Being able to identify the, the tendencies of political affiliation to affect writing, I mean, that's, it's spectacular. Yeah. And it probably was happening in a lot of places. I mean, we're, we're, this is a case study of probably a broader theme that's going on um, in writing systems all over the world. I mean, um, the, the field of socio-historical linguistics or historical sociolinguistics, however you decide to term it, uh, looks at questions exactly like this, right? What was the sociological kind of environment, sociolinguistic environment that produced the historical linguistic changes or evidence that we see in the languages? Um, and so that's been fun to get into that kind of the, the broader picture, looking at, for example, um, early Middle English, um, which has a lot of these kind of same mm, socio-political influences um, on the, the written script. So what are... What are your next steps? You mentioned that you need to make the maps, run some statistics. Um, what's next for your project after that? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it kind of depends on where the data take me. So one 
um, the, the, the next big thing is to see, okay, I've noticed like a little bit of political stuff going on. Where can I replicate this? Can I see it anywhere else? Does it show up anywhere else? Um, with a site that changes alliance, for example, Bonham Park mm -hmm. um, becomes allied to Yashilan. And, you know, there's a, there's a specific time frame in which that happens within the reign of Itzamach Bachlam IV. And there it, you know, can, are there ways in which Bonham Park's texts start to look more like Yashilan? Julian's text as a result of that. So that's kind of the next step is, is asking those kinds of questions. Um, but I have this hunch, and maybe I shouldn't be putting this out <laughs> like as a as an official thing just yet, because I might be, I might prove myself totally wrong. We'll see. Mm -hmm. um, but I have this hunch that there are gonna be two levels of things going on linguistically in the text. The first is gonna be what I was originally anticipating starting off this project is that the native language of the scribes will be influencing certain features of the writing system. And then there will be this kind of overt conscious choice based on a scribal school tradition that will also influence the text. And I'm wondering if there's gonna be a way to tease apart which kinds of linguistic choices will fall in which category. So for example, um, how scribes would write certain verb inflections maybe would fall more under their native language than a scribal school's spelling standard. Um, but something like which letter specifically, or in the Maya case, which syllable specifically you would use to write a certain consonant could maybe be something a little bit more overt, something a little bit more conscientious that's chosen based on a scribal school tradition. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to happen, if that's going to be really obvious, or if it even was the case that language is, the, the language of the, na the native language of the scribe could be influencing certain kinds of linguistic features, maybe syntax, word order, might be a really good place to see that mm -hmm. versus kind of the more overt um, things that would be like a scribal school telling you how to spell something. Um, I would love to see that. I'm gonna try not to influence my data to tell me that um, right. <laughs> and hopefully just let the data speak for itself. But yeah, that's, that's where I would hope to go in the future with this. Um, and then more broadly after that, like going into, you know, earlier timeframes, I'm, I'm only looking at late classic texts, looking at early classic texts would be great. Um, looking at more like expanding my region a little bit more. I'm doing probably about half of the texts within that time frame for the whole my area, maybe trying to do, you know, the rest, the other half of the text from that time frame um, would be good. I, I haven't even, touched Tikal or Copan or Kirigua mm -hmm. and those are massive sites that probably had a really big influence on the sites around them and how they were writing but I I cut them out of my dissertation just because it wasn't answering the specific kind of political and regional questions that I wanted to look at um so yeah that would be kind of future directions for this research awesome that's so exciting I I'm just really excited to read everything that you put together <laughs> Me too. I'm yeah. 
Um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered so far? Um, I don't know if, if it makes sense to fit this in somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, the challenges that I've come up against in mm -hmm. this. Yeah. Um, I was given a lot of great resources when it came to reading the inscriptions and accessing the inscriptions. Um, but when it comes to creating a database and creating systems for tracking and recording the things that I want to look at, I was kind of left to, to figure that out. Right. And I'm realizing getting to the end of this, of course, that I started the whole thing in a way that I would now have totally done differently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that I set up, I set the foundation in a way that I'm sure would have been maybe is okay. I, I, I laid the foundation in a way that is great as asking, answering the specific questions that I wanted to look at, but it's really limiting in that I didn't track as much as I now wish that I had. Right. Um, I've had to go back and reread through all of the monuments that I had already done because I realized that there was a feature that I needed to add. I've had to redo that. I think I've gone through that process maybe six or seven times of going back to the Oof. beginning and rereading everything to add a couple of things that I wanted to add. Um, or to track in a way that was more searchable or more consistent or whatever the case may be. Um, and so I think, you know, having one of the things that I really want to do in my dissertation is say, like, here's how my database ended up and here are all of the ways that I now want to change it. Um, and I know mm -hmm. after I finish my dissertation, I'm basically going to ditch the entire database as it is <laughs> and start from scratch um, and totally redo it, which I guess is the point of doing these kinds of research projects that you learn strategies that you then, you know, adapt and perfect. Um, and at some point you kind of just have to say, well, this is going to be good enough. I'm going to move forward with it for the dissertation and, you know, down the line, fix it to be what I want it to be. But um mm -hmm. I, I, I got really frustrated with this at a certain point, thinking that this was almost a waste of t my time, that I'm going to have to go back and redo all of this all over again. Um, but I think that the, just the process of going through it and figuring it out for the first time, and then now knowing how I would want to do it more efficiently in the future, um, I'm, I, I guess I'm grateful for that to not having worked out so great in the first time in the first round because I feel like I understand better database management um, creating databases working with data out of a database that kind of thing right yeah it's definitely one of the skills that isn't taught as much but definitely should be yeah um, I know, right? yeah if you don't mind me asking how are you organizing your data because this is something that I've you know like started thinking about as I start collecting Mm -hmm. data and I'm like I, I've seen how other people do it but I it's a black hole of information yeah so um, the first decision that I made that was maybe not the best one in hindsight is that I'm using FileMaker instead of access mm -hmm. and 
Um, I, what I didn't know at the beginning is that access actually integrates with GIS software pretty easily, but mm. FileMaker does not. <laughs> gotcha. And had someone told me that, oh, your goal is to make maps, you should definitely be using access. Then I would have, <laughs> I would have totally changed. But the reason I use um, FileMaker is because it's compatible with Mac and it's just a, it's a more intuitive database management software, at least right. I think. Um, I had a harder time trying to learn access and at the very beginning. So I just, mm -hmm. stuck with, I just went with FileMaker. Um, so then within the database, I have one entry for each text that has its date and sources for its, uh, for images of it. And then I have tabs that are linked to each table for each of the features that I'm tracking. So I have a table in the database for each feature. Mm -hmm. Features are calendric features, morphological, phonological, lexical, syntactic, titles, names, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then within each of those, you know, I'll have like phonology. I'm, I have a tab for um, H and J syllables. So every single mm. syllable that starts with an H and every single syllable that starts with J except for all of those that are in verbs because they always use J um, mm -hmm. as a verb um, suffix. Like even in places where they will conflate H and J, they still always use ha, for example, as passive, for right. passive verbs or whatever. Um, so I, I have, you know, all of the instances of H and all of the instances of J and then whether they're expected or unexpected um, and then a little transcription of that line. And then I have, um, for example, in the calendrics, I, I look at which verbs are being used in a calendric um, information. So like there's a calendar round and then a distance number and then, the, or probably distance number and then a verb, iukti, and then a calendar round. And so I'll, I'll tag like, are they using the iukti and then it happened verb? Or are mm -hmm. they using the ipas and then it dawned verb? Or are they using the utsakah, the um, it was counted or added up verb. Mm -hmm. And so I'll check which one they're using and then whether they have um, a distance number or calendar round or both or whatever. Right. So that, okay. So then each of those tabs will have a table linked to it. And each of the tables for the features are linked back to the original table of all of the monuments. Mm -hmm. So then I can say, you know, we know the date of this monument is seven, 9-17-5-0-0. And then you can say, okay, there were two passive verbs at this date from this site. And so then I have site by site and in chronologic um, order where, where things are geographically. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how I organized it. But <laughs> what I would do now is in order to help down the road for all of my future research, um, I'm scrapping this and I'm gonna go glyph by glyph, like syllable or logogram mm, at a time mm -hmm, right. and track every single one and then say, okay, within this block, there are four syllables. And then, you know, this glyph block gives us this word and then this word falls under the category of verb. And so therefore it's this kind of verb and it has, you know, these um, sub clauses on it. For example, like there's an ukab he phrase. It was done by so and so. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that would be attached 
to, to, you know, glyph by glyph looking at every single, so then I could call up, okay, where are all of the na syllables? Mm -hmm. And then I could pull up every single example of a na syllable. And then, you know, you could do something like, well, is it the, the na that looks like, you know, the, the one, I don't know, the standard na that goes underneath Mm -hmm. like Uchan, right? Or is it the na that has the little smiley face on it, right? Mm -hmm. Which na is it? And then you could look through and do that kind of study, which I, the way that my database is organized right now, I don't have the power to do that. Right. So, yeah. 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 So that's the idea. That makes sense. It's way more work to do it that way. Yes. Um, but But you could do a lot more with it, which I think is, that's why in the end I decided to go with the database the way that I do have it set up. But I, you know, in the end I, I regret it. Maybe what I could have done is something kind of intermediate where I could have had the option to expand Mm -hmm. into noting every single element of every single glyph block, like even including the T numbers or whatever. Uh But that would just be so much work at this. Maybe I could, what I could have done is like set it up so that I could eventually fill all of that information in, but that for like the dissertation, I didn't need to have it filled in. I don't know. If I, if I could go back, that's probably what I would have done Mm -hmm. is something kind of in between. Yeah. But yeah. Hindsight, right? I know. Right. Uh, two and a half years later. Yeah. I know how I should start. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, I feel like the perspective that you have is one that it, I feel like everyone has to learn that, right? The dissertation is just a step. Like we, we look at it as like this final culminating identifying thing, but really it's just an example. Your permission to keep working. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Your certificate that says you learned how to do research. Here you go. Keep going. (laughs) Yep, exactly. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, just really quickly. I I love this question. What do you love the most about what you do? What is it that keeps you doing it? Oh, boy. Um, Well, okay. The glyphs are beautiful and they're fascinating. And the historical insight that we get into who the ancient Maya were and what kinds of things did they focus on and, and, you know, treasure or, you know, strive for or Mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah, maybe these texts are propagandistic and just telling us what the rulers want us to know, but it's still an interesting insight into this ancient culture. the part that I think I appreciate the most about what I do has less to do with the actual collection of data and working through the text and more to do with the community of people that I get to engage with. Mm-hmm. Um, people that do Maya studies are first off crazy about what they do and mm-hmm. love it always wanting to engage with other people about it and get excited about the new things that are coming out. Um, There's a passion for this field that, you know, um, comes from just excited individuals engaging with each other over a really fun topic. Um, But also that the Maya are a topic that, that opens doors for the modern Maya people. So studying ancient Maya has 
given a lot to modern Maya peoples. Mm-hmm. It's created maybe negatively this kind of pan Maya movement from Western interest in ancient Maya things and how we kind of have perceived of them as one unitary group, which mm-hmm. they aren't. Um, but it has also given credence and credibility to the the kind of long historical tradition that these people who are of late really under the thumb of an oppressive colonial um, like socioeconomic system Mm -hmm. and working with the inscriptions and bringing that to people in Guatemala for example, um, is really empowering that these people have access to their history that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. Right. Um, and so that I really find a lot of meaning in and get excited about. Um, I've twice now given workshops uh, in Guatemala or three times even. Um, and, you know, I've talked to people in a town called Hokotan, which is where the modern Chorty live Mm -hmm. Um, and they are so overwhelmingly confronted with Spanish Spanish language Spanish you know Hispanic culture that theirs has taken a back seat and Mm -hmm. they have been discouraging children and future generations from speaking Chorty their native language Mm -hmm. um, which is very closely related to the language of the hieroglyphic inscriptions Um, and Western interest because of, you know, people like me, for whatever negative side effects it may have, may be having on these people has also instilled a level of um, confidence, appreciation, and kind of this historical knowledge that they, that they otherwise wouldn't have about their own people. And um, there's, where did that quote go? I'm going to find a quote for you that that I heard recently that Mm -hmm. um, I think speaks to this particular question that I really love. So the quote is by Jeanette Bastian, and it goes like this. A community without its records is a community under siege defending itself, its identity, and its version of history without a firm foundation on which to stand. Um, And it's just this powerful reminder that history, knowing where your culture comes from, has such a profound impact on how you engage with other people that are different from you. Um, And being able to restore that history, restore that knowledge of written records to these people is something that, you know, many Mayanists um, have found really important and and has really created, I think, a lot of positive effects for, for the modern Maya. Right. Yeah, it really, it really is a spectacular opportunity to be able to do something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about this. Um, yeah, thanks, Katie. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear more about your research and hopefully to have you back on sometime soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Friends, once again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to Mary-Kate for sharing all of the research that you're working on. The next few weeks, we'll show some more content, so please stay tuned. And if you have a recommendation for someone that you'd like me to reach out to to get an interview with, feel free to send me an email at katherine at Thank you all so much for listening. I'll see you soon.